Well, he was born in England on the eve of the Great Awakening in 1731. He was a linguistic scholar of the first order, one of the best 18th century English poets. If there was such a thing as a, a hall of fame for him writers, his name would be there right alongside Isaac Watts and uh, Newton, John Newton and Charles Wesley. His name was William Cooper. He is the one who wrote the hymn that we just sang. He was not born in a Christian home. His mother died when he was six years old. His father was a cold and abusive man. At the age of 11, his father forced him to read an essay titled, The Vindication of Self-Murder. In other words, his dad had him read an article defending the virtues of suicide when he was 11 years old. When he was 18, his father, well, when he was six, his father sent him to a boarding school until he was 18. Uh, when he was 21, he experienced his very first mental breakdown. And these breakdowns would plague him on and off for the rest of his life. In those days, they called it melancholy. We call it depression. The Bible calls it despair. When he was uh, just out of school, he got engaged to the love of his life, a young lady by the name of Theodora, but on the, the eve of the wedding, her father stepped in and ended the engagement. He had another breakdown. At age 32, his father, desperate to get him some sort of work, arranged for him to take an exam that if he passed, he would get a really good job, the clerk of the journals in Parliament. But Cooper became so anxious about the exam that he tried to kill himself so that he wouldn't have to take it. He was found hanging by the neck in his room. He was then committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum. While in the insane asylum, he met somebody who was ministering to the inmates there, Nathaniel Cotton. Nathaniel Cotton was a Christian. He was very kind to Cooper and explained the gospel to him and led him to the Lord and discipled him, and Cooper became a Christian. Later, he would be discipled by John Newton himself, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, and taught to write hymns to the glory of God. And yet, even though he was saved, even though he was rejoicing in the Lord, he still had this, uh, these episodes of melancholy and breakdowns that would plague him. He would try on other occasions to end his life. And yet it was his relationship with the Lord that he clung to through these times of despair. And even though he would continue to have these deep bouts of depression in his life, it was his pen that he used to write his way clear of them. And it is from his pen that we learn a powerful lesson of providence and sovereignty in the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Let me read for you some of those words that we just sang, bearing in mind who wrote them. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. This understanding that whatever you're going through might be bitter now, but it will eventually grow into something where you see the sweetness of God. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning 
providence, he hides a smiling face. It is this smiling face behind the, the dark clouds of a frowning providence that we see unfold hour by hour in the book of Ruth. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, the book of Ruth. We're going to have a little recap, and this is our final message in this wonderful book that we've been enjoying, learning these very lessons that Cooper learned about God's sovereignty and providence. Just to remind you, if you haven't been with us in the series, sovereignty refers to the teaching that God is in control of all things. He's sovereign. He is the sovereign. He is the one that is in charge of even tiny details like the death of a sparrow or your hair turning gray or falling out of your head. He's in charge of all of those things, um, all the way up to the macro um, movements of redemption in the cosmos. That's sovereignty. The doctrine of providence is the way God is involved in his creation without breaking the laws of nature. There's two ways that he's involved in creation. One is miracles, where he breaks the law of nature, and the other one is providence, where he uses our will, our decisions, circumstances in life, the laws of nature, and he uses all of those things to accomplish his will. And that's a very common way that he works. We call it providence. Sometimes providence is confusing to us. Why would a good God allow this bad thing to happen to this good person? And that's what Cooper was wrestling with most of his life, and that's what that song is about, and that's really what the book of Ruth is about. And so we find ourselves now in the fourth chapter of Ruth, where God, acting as his own interpreter, will make plain what we've noticed about the dark providence of Naomi's life. I'm going to give you the outline today. The outline today follows the outline of a magic trick. There's a sense in which what God does in the book of Ruth is truly remarkable. And we get that sense if you ever go and see a magic performance. You know, there's the three, the three stages of a magic trick. The pledge, the turn, and the prestige. So the pledge is when you are presented with something fairly ordinary, you know, like a dove. You know, you're presented with something anyone could do, like a lady lying on a plank or a person fanning out a deck of cards while you hold a balloon, okay? So that's, that's the pledge. That's the first step of any magic trick. It's just something anyone could do. But then there's the turn where the ordinary becomes extraordinary, uh, when the commonplace becomes remarkable. And at the, the moment of the turn is like when the dove disappears or the lady is sawed in half. Um, or the magician locates the same card or identifies the card that you secretly had chosen in your mind, something like that, something extraordinary. That's the turn. But the show isn't over at that point. The final stage is the prestige. The prestige is where the magician adds a little flourish, where he tops what he's just done in order to surprise and delight the audience and to elicit an ooh and an ah from the audience. And this is like when the dove comes back and is actually a peacock. Or the lady is put back together again and now she's wearing a new dress. Or the balloon that uh, you've been holding is containing the card that you picked secretly all along. Ooh, ah, that's the prestige. Again, we kind of see that unfold in this dramatic story of Ruth. So let's start with the pledge. Let me remind you what the pledge was. Ordinary events, something that just happens in life. 
Remember that Ruth is a snapshot of normality. In the days that the judges ruled Israel, when there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, there's this constant state of spiritual darkness that gets worse and worse and worse. And yet, here we see a little pocket of faithful people. There's no miracles. There's no visitation from God, no angels, no direct revelation. It's just normal people doing normal things. There's weddings, there's funerals, there's travel, there's baby showers, there's all sorts of things going on, just normal life. This is a snapshot of godly people just doing their best to please God. In verse 1, we're told, verse 1 of chapter 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. His name's Elimelech. Verse 3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion, the two sons, died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is the frowning providence. This is something that just happened. There's no laws of nature being broken here. This man tried to escape the judgment of God. He was bringing a famine over the land of Israel during the judges of Israel, this, uh, the days of the judges. This was common in Israel, that God would punish Israel because they were worshiping foreign gods. This is a man that tried to escape that punishment going to Moab, something that the Israelites were not allowed to do. And he was not able to escape that anyway. He dies, his sons die, and there is this tragedy. There's this dark cloud. Why? Why is this happening? We saw then that Naomi hears that there's food back in Bethlehem, in Israel, 10 years later. She heads back in verse 19. Um, she goes with Ruth. Orpah stays with her people and her gods. Ruth clings to, Ruth the Moabite clings to Naomi and her people and her God. And verse 19 of chapter 1 says, The two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Now, here you have the woman of the village playing an important part that gets wrapped up in the end as well. They've identified Naomi. Her name means pleasant in Hebrew. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. I'm no longer pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, pleasant, when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And when we were going through that passage, we, we said that Naomi's response is legitimate. She is acknowledging the sovereignty of God. She's not fully embracing it at this point. She doesn't like it, and we don't expect her to. She's been dealt a difficult hand, but she knows who the dealer is. And she knows that it's the Almighty, and He's in control of all things, and He is sovereign. This is a lesson that we've been learning through the book of Ruth. And I, let me just remind you, you need to learn this lesson as early as you can in your Christian walk. Because we will all go through tragedy at some point. That's what it's like living in a sin-cursed world. God does not want us entrenched in this world. He does not want us in love with this world. He does not want us fulfilled by this world. He does not want us to get our joy from this world and these relationships and these families and the joys that he gives us, he wants us to enjoy but not find fulfillment. So he wants us always to feel a sense of hollowness and emptiness without him. 
So that drives us to find him and be fulfilled in our relationship with him, which will one day be consummated when the curse is lifted and reversed. And we can live with him in the kingdom forever, with no curse and no sin. But until then, we are all sojourners. We are immigrants. This is not our home. We are heavenites longing for our home. And so that's what we see here, is that this is just something that happens in the sin-cursed world, is people die. But at least Naomi knows this lesson. And she obviously knew it before it happened. And you need to know it before it happens. You can't learn sovereignty in the midst of a tragedy. You're not thinking straight in the midst of a tragedy. You're, you're reeling emotionally and spiritually. You need to be anchored. And so now, before the tragedy, is where you need to learn this. It really should be Christianity 101. Jesus loves me and God is sovereign. In fact, on the, on the ride to church this morning, one of my kids told me a joke that I'd never heard before. She said, what is the first thing that elves learn in school? And I didn't know. Turns out it's the alphabet. Um, <laughs> the alphabet, I laughed out loud. Um, well, the, the alphabet, the first thing we should learn in school as Christians is that God is in control, that even when these things happen that we don't understand, the, the, the frowning providence we need to realize is a providence. It is God involved. So that's what we learned there. And we were left asking the question, why? We know from Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You might not feel that at the time, but we know that to be true. Then we had the question, how? If God is going to somehow make this frowning providence turn into a smiling face, what is that going to look like? How is this bitter bud going to turn into a sweet flower? And that's where we moved into chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is where the pledge turns an ordinary situation into an extraordinary situation. And so we move to our second point, the turn. So we're recapping first. There was the pledge. There's this ordinary tragedy. They come back to Bethlehem. Now we're going to see God kind of work his magic, as it were, in the turn. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So remember that there is something called the Leverite Law. The Leverite Law was the law of the brother-in-law. That's what lever means in Latin. And it's the closest male relative to the man who dies is responsible for looking after the family. Now, Naomi didn't have a close male relative in Moab. She comes to Bethlehem, and the narrator tells us right up front, this is what the trick is going to be. This is the turn is that there is this man in this town who is related to the dead Elimelech. But how how are we going to put these two together? Because Ruth's a Moabites, and she's probably barren since she's been married for 10 years without a child. So who's going to want to marry this Moabite? And that's where we find ourselves. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically from verse 1 to verse 12, we have this... Um, well, first, first, remember, there's the leap year engagement. A leap year engagement is when a woman proposes to a man, and that's exactly what happens. Naomi says, wash yourself for crying out loud. Put on some, you know, Coco Chanel, and go and lie at his feet. And when he smells your perfume, and he wakes up, then he'll take over from there. But instead, 
she kind of jumps the gun and proposes marriage. And she said it in a very, very beautiful way because when he first met her, gleaning in the field, picking up the, the, the leftovers in the field, he said, um, you know, blessed are you because you have chosen to come under the wings of Yahweh for refuge, like a, like a chick running under her mother's wings. That's what you were coming like. And so when she meets him and wants to propose, she says to him, um, you know, I want to come under your wings, <laughs> which is a little pun there because the, the Hebrew word for wings is also the skirt of your garment and, and she's cold. So he's like, spread your wings over me. So it can either be, please put your blanket over me because I'm cold or you be the wings of Yahweh over me, uh, whichever one it is. And, and he realizes, okay, this is what's happening, but he has integrity and he realizes he's not actually the closest kinsman redeemer he's not the one who has the first option at marrying her there's another guy who remains nameless through the story because he gets a little embarrassed later on um the name given to him in hebrew is um uh poloni elmoni and poloni elmoni is a it just means mr such and such you know so mr such and such gets invited to sit with boaz in the gate of the city where the business was done when he sits down, immediately 10 of the elders of the city sit down as well, and the court is in session. What's going on here? Oh, good news, Mr. Poloni. Um, you, get, you get to buy the field of our dead relative, Elimelech, and it gets to be your field. And he says, where do I sign? Just one moment. The footnote says that if you sign for the field, you also get the Moabite. Oh, uh, oh, no, I don't want a Moabite widow. Oh, I've got this other problem. Sorry, sorry. What am I going to do? And Boaz says, okay, I'll take her off your hands. Um, and then they seal the deal with a sandal. I'm not making that up. Um, verse 8, when the Redeemer, this is chapter 4, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And we went and had a look at the sandal scandal. That The, the idea was if the, the nearest brother-in-law didn't do what he was supposed to, the woman was allowed to come and take off his sandal and spit in his face and they would change his name to the sandalous one, you know, because remember we said being sandalous is scandalous. And so there, this was the scandal that you wouldn't look after your family. Well, now we have a guy that's admitting, you can take my sandal, please take my sandal, change my name, call me Mr. Barefoot, I don't care, I do not want some random Moabite lady in my life and her bitter mother-in-law Mara. No, 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 no. And so Boaz says, okay, I'll do it. And we're all like, yay, because we like Boaz. And also because the narrator told us, this is what God's doing. He's bringing about good here. So this is what happens. Boaz marries Ruth. All's well that ends well. But there was a loose end. This is where we got to last week. Last week we left with this dangling loose end. All of this is about trying to produce a male heir for Elimelech's line but Boaz is this old man. Ruth's young, but she's been married 10 years and doesn't have a child. What if there's no male heir? The whole plan stalls. So this is all part of the turn. This is all part of well, what's God going to do here. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, we're told this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and this is very important, Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. There it is. There's the turn. There's God working his magic. She bore a son. 
Then the woman said to Naomi, the same woman who greeted her when she came, they said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And is it? Yeah, everybody knows who Boaz is. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name. These are pretty nosy women. I mean... They named the kid, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. So here we move. The the turn is very satisfying at this point. So she, she gets married. She has a son. He's named Obed. It means servant. Named by the ladies. So the ladies meet her as Naomi. Then they have to call her Mara. By the end, they're calling her Naomi again. So now they've changed her name back to Naomi. They name the son. Everybody's happy. They're all rejoicing. That's the turn. But now for the prestige. Now God is about to top what he's done. This could be the end of the story. This is fine. She left empty. She's come back full. Uh, and th- the theme of emptiness and fullness is throughout the book. They're empty, but then Boaz you know, puts food in, and then they come back full, and, and she goes off there empty, and she comes back empty, but now she's full, and there's this full, empty, full, empty thing, and it ends with this fullness. You've got this child. Ta-da! The trick's over. Or is it? No, 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 no. Now we move to point number three, the prestige. Because at the end of verse 17, here's our little flourish. It says, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then it carries on going. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Who cares? Hezron fathered Ram. Nobody. Ram fathered Eminadab. Eminadab. This guy. And uh, he fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Now we're getting somewhere. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Now why would you end such a good story with a genealogy. I mean, come on. It's like the opening credits, now you've got the closing credits, but that's how you want to end? Where's the flourish? Where's the prestige? No, you see, it's there. That is the prestige. It's like when you're watching the opening credits, uh, the closing credits of a movie, and you start seeing, you know, Bill Gates as himself, and you're like, wait, Bill Gates was in that movie? You know, Steve Jobs as himself. Steve Jobs was in that movie. It's like all these famous people that you, you missed in the movie. Like, wait, they were in there? That's what's happening here. In these closing credits, there's this genealogy that's saying this whole little story that was happening in the days of the judges, it wasn't just a rom-com. This is part of an epic story. This is one scene in a very large narrative. And what you need to do here is zoom out and see what God is doing. This is David's lineage. Now, one of the reasons, some commentators say one of the reasons that the book is even in the Bible is because it was written to show David's lineage because there would have been a question about this king that rumor had it, his grandma was a Moabite. And so his press secretary releases the book of Ruth to show everybody, yes, she was a Moabite, but you don't know the whole story. She was a Moabite who clung to her 
God and his people and to her mother-in-law and she was loyal and she had a good work ethic and she married legitimately into the line and Boaz did this thing and look at the meat cute and look at the great story and all this stuff and then everyone would be like, Oh, his grandma was a Moabite rather than hold that against him. So that's one of the, the ideas behind why the book is there. It's all about David's lineage and that's why it ends with that. But I think there's even more going on here. See, the narrator is lifting our gaze from the trials of life to a larger perspective. And this is the key for you to get through your trials, is that you need to lift your gaze off the trial that you're in and put it in context of the larger plan of redemption that God is doing. So Kim and I were in Switzerland once. We were um, hiking in the Alps. Now, when you just say that, doesn't that sound amazing? Hiking in the Alps? Isn't that like on your bucket list? It should be. But that's not how you feel while you're hiking in the Alps. The way you feel when you're hiking in the Alps is the same way you feel like when you're hiking just anywhere in Alabama. You've got blisters. You might sprain your ankle. It's extremely steep. You're looking down the whole time. You're, it's, it's, you're just walking and walking, and your legs are hurting. And at one point, I kind of stopped and sat down. We took a little water break, take off my shoes to rub my feet, and I look up and... <laughs> I'm hiking in the Alps. <laughs> you, these are the Alps. I mean, some of the most beautiful mountains in the whole world. And you're sitting there and they're snow-capped. And it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. And you're sort of like, what have I been doing looking down at my feet the whole time? But that's how we are in life, isn't it? Because you wake up in the morning, your alarm goes off four times, and you get out of bed, and then you've got to have your two cups of coffee, and then you've got to get your kids dressed, and they mess on their school uniform, so you've got to get another school uniform, and you've got to drive them, and you didn't get gas, so you've got to get gas on the way, and now you're late for school, now the kid's upset about that, now you've got to ride a little... And all this is going on, and you kind of forget, I'm a child of the creator of the universe who loves me, who sent his son to live and die for me, who has secured an inheritance for me for all eternity and has left me on earth to be a shining light of all of his grace and his mercy to all of the people that are still in darkness. And I completely forgot about that for all of this morning. And sometimes you go the whole day and sometimes you go the whole week. And if you skip church and you don't hear a message that reminds you, you go a whole fortnight or a whole month and you don't remember where you fit into everything. And so what the narrator of Ruth is doing here is he's lifting our chin. He's saying, don't look at the funeral. Don't look at the baby. Don't look at the leap year engagement. All of that's fine. Look up. This little baby is going to have a little boy called Jesse who's going to have a little boy called David. And remember when this is being written. In the days when the judges ruled Israel because there was what? No king in Israel. And while that is going on, there's a little baby being born who's going to be the grandpa of the best king Israel ever has. See, we've asked why, and the answer is, God is sovereign. We ask how, and the answer is, almost always through providence. We ask when, and the answer is, before you even thought about it. That's when. Before, when you, before you realized you had a need, God in his providence was already working in so many different ways. I mean, you can think of hundreds of different ways in your own life that that all worked. For me, I've told you the story of how Kim and I met and, you know, 
she's taking a class in Afrikaans literature because it's the only thing that fit into her schedule so that she didn't have to walk back and forth to campus. She doesn't even know what the class is about. She's taking a class in a language that nobody in the world speaks except South Africans. And I learned Afrikaans not knowing why, because no one speaks it. But then I meet this girl who needs help with her Afrikaans homework. And God was planning that way before I even knew her. It worked out well, by the way. Meet cute and all that. Um, so this is what God's doing. He's lifting our eyes off our feet and looking at the Alps of the redemptive history. He's providing a king for Israel. God is providing not only for Naomi and for Ruth and for Boaz, but he's providing for Israel. And if you zoom out a little bit more, you see the real prestige. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Matthew's also starting with the opening credits, and Salmon the father of Boaz, and he has a little detail we didn't get here, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And he was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and it goes on, and the Jacob, and it goes on and on and on and on. Verse 16, it says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You see, we see something from Matthew that the writer of Ruth didn't even know. That, that's the prestige. Can I get an ooh? Can I get an ah? It's not only something that's ordinary that he made extraordinary. He adds this flourish that this whole little story, the person who wrote it doesn't even know because God's actually the person who wrote it. And he was planning all along that from David would come a covenant, that from David's house would be a king born that would rule Israel forever. And not only Israel, the whole world, which means you and I can be saved. And that happened in the rom-com. That happened in the chick flick of the Old Testament. This little book, little nestled book here. Every little piece of the puzzle comes together to give God glory and work things out for our good. That's the message of Ruth. So when asked why, the answer is because God is working out his purpose. When asked how, he's using his law, he's using providence and sovereignty, and sometimes he'll even use miracles. And ask when, and the answer is before you were even born. Do this exercise this week. Think through your life. Draw a little timeline and just put a couple of points on there. You know, birth, then big things that happened to you. Who you married, when you became a believer. And then think through, just think through carefully what had to happen beforehand to get you to those points. Decisions you made that you had no idea you were making. No idea. I mean, I remember so clearly, this was before I was a believer, I was a senior in high school. I was sitting down at the dining room table with my parents. And I was choosing between two colleges. I wanted to be a journalist. Because I wanted to write things that were different every week and uh, they had a deadline and, you know, stuff like the ministry is. Um, 
I didn't realize that I was an oblivion, not like languages and writing. And I was deciding whether to go to our country's best journalism school, which was eight hours away, which was a plus to get away from, anyway, um, or to go to the local university and do a different degree, Bachelor of Information Science, and then eventually do a master's degree at that other um, place, and it would be cheaper, and my parents would help support that more, and, and I was deciding, deciding, and my parents said, you can choose whatever you want. Do what, and I was like, no, you choose for me. And they were like, no, you pick it. And I remember at that moment thinking that where I decide to go is going to determine who I marry. Because in my mind, you meet who you're going to marry at college. So, so now the pressure was on me because I'm like, I'm, de I'm deciding my entire life here. I'm deciding who I'm getting married. And I haven't even met these people yet. And sure enough... I chose to go to the one university, the local one, because there was a girl that I liked there. And she was the girl, she was a believer and I wasn't. She invited me to a Bible study. She didn't even show up. But I went to that Bible study. And that's where I heard the gospel. And that's where I got saved. And that's why I came to seminary. And that's why I helped that girl with her Afrikaans homework. And that's why I'm married to this one today and I'm a pastor and a Christian because I picked that one university. Now what if I picked the other university? And the answer is, there is no other university. There's only the story that God has laid out. We feel like we're making these important life decisions and what if I make this massive mistake? But remember, that's what providence is. Providence is using your decision to get you to where you need to be. And God knows, as we've seen in the Wednesday series, not only everything that did happen, and everything that is happening, and everything that will happen, he knows everything that could have happened. Contingency knowledge. Now Wednesday as we're going through Luke, we've seen that. So he knew everything that could have happened and chose not to ordain those ways because this was the perfect plan that he had for you. There are no coincidences, there are no accidents, and there are no mistakes. That's the lesson we get from the book of Ruth. I want us to turn for the last time to the book of Romans 8. I've been quoting Romans chapter 8, verse 28, over and over through the series. I did it earlier today. But I always stop shy of Romans 8:29 because I wanted to save it for this sermon. Sneaky. Romans 8:28, the New Testament version of what we learned in the book of Ruth, but it goes on. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But here's verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, that's the prestige. That's the ooh and the ah of the New Testament, is that, yes, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, but we also learn that that purpose started before you were born, 
that the people in that purpose, the people who do believe him, the people that are his, the people that he's working all these things out for good, he predestined. And the same people that he predestined are the same people all the way along the track that end up glorified in heaven. So your salvation is perfectly secure. But whenever you hear a sermon on those verses, that's what we preachers like to emphasize because that's just so cool. But there's a little nugget in there that deserves emphasis this morning. And that's in the middle of 29. He, gives, he says, why? He foreknew us and predestined us to be like Jesus Christ and will glorify us. Verse 29, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And you're saying, so? What do you call the brother-in-law who has to take care of the widow? What's, what, what's, what have we been calling him? The kinsman redeemer. Kinsman, as in your next of kin, the closest relative needs to be a family member from your clan. That's why it's such an important thing when the narrator says, now when they got to Bethlehem, just bear in mind that there was this worthy man named Boaz who was a relative of Elimelech. He, he's the kinsman redeemer. And the ladies at the end of the story, that's their little song is like, Blessed be Yahweh because he has not left you without a redeemer. The whole story is about that there just happened to be this redeemer and that he was a kinsman and he could do it and he wanted to and he did. And you get to the New Testament and we find out that all of these bad things that happen are actually working for good. Why? So that Jesus Christ can be one of the brothers. The firstborn is a technical word in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean the first one to be birthed. This is the mistake that Jehovah's Witnesses make. If you ever speak to Jehovah's Witness, the first thing they'll tell you, if you say, well, what's the difference between what Christians believe and what you believe, they'll say, we don't believe in the Trinity because the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Colossians chapter 1. The firstborn of many brothers. Romans chapter 8, and they say, you see, he was born. He was produced. He was the first of the creations, but he was created. That's, that's how they differ. But that's a misunderstanding of the Greek word prototokos. It's like um, if I ask you, what do you call these ladies? Um, I'll name a few. Melania Trump, uh, Michelle Obama, Barbara Bush, Martha Washington. What are they called? The? The first lady. How could they be the first lady? We know Eve is... Okay, we understand what that means to be the first lady. It means of all the ladies in politics, she's the preeminent one because she happened to be married to the right guy. Um, she's the preeminent one. She's not the first in chronological order. She's like the top lady. That's what first means. It's the same here. The firstborn is the one who's in charge of the rest of the brothers. That's why Jacob was born second, but he ends up being the prototokos. He ends up being the one who gets the covenant. So in that way, Jesus, he wasn't the first person born. In fact, no one was created except through him. But he is the preeminent one. He is called a brother. He became like us. He took on human flesh so that he could be like us. 
so that he could suffer like us, so that he could have weaknesses like us, so that he could sympathize with us, so that he could be a brother, so that he could be a kinsman redeemer. He had to be like us. He had to be our relative. He had to be a human in order to save humans from the wrath of the Father. So that's what you need to keep your mind on this week. Instead of looking at the blisters on your feet, look up at the Alps of redemptive history and see that all things that are going on, from the spilt coffee on your shirt and the flat tire and the stubbed toe, all the way to tragic events and the loss of loved ones or the loss of your business or your job or a terminal health diagnosis or, or anything that causes you to reel, just remember that all of these things are part of the grand scheme that God has to give himself glory and to work out good for you and that he did not spare his own son so that that son could be your kinsman redeemer. All of that was being planned because Ruth just so happened to pick the right field. Now, I want to close with a, a story. I don't know if it fits here or not, but I've, I've just been saving it for you the whole series. Um, it's, a, it's about our Kent Hughes. Some of you know Kent Hughes because he wrote the book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. So he, he tells a story of something that happened to him. His wife, Barbara, went into hospital for a very simple surgical procedure. During the operation, he sat in the waiting room, and he was surprised to meet a friend of his wife's niece. Her name was Susan. Susan was a lab technician at the same hospital, and so they get talking, and a few hours later, Barbara's surgery is over, and as she's being wheeled out, something goes wrong, and she has to be wheeled back into surgery. She started hemorrhaging, and the doctors had no idea why. For five and a half hours, the doctors tried everything they could think of to stop the bleeding. They kept replacing her blood. Nothing was working. They were at a loss. This carried on throughout the whole night. The next morning, Susan comes back and had brought some magazines for Barbara to read. And as she's going to Barbara's room, she notices the family's in the waiting room still. And the, she can tell that there's distress, and so she feels it would be inappropriate for her to show up, so she just leaves. But as she's leaving, she overhears a doctor say something to one of the family members, and Kent's associate pastor, no, this is what she overheard, sorry, Kent's associate pastor was there, and he said this, these are the words she heard, Barbara knows that her blood will not clot, she knows that she's going to die. And as Susan's walking away, there's something about that phrase, her blood will not clot, that rings a bell, and stirs up a memory from 10 years earlier, when she was a med student and she was doing a night shift with Barbara's niece. And while they were sitting in the lab, they were so bored that they decided to take each other's blood and just do a random bunch of tests on them. So they took each other's blood, they did all these tests, and they found that this young girl, Barbara's niece, had a very rare condition that meant her blood would not clot. And that was a good thing to know, and she kind of filed that away. Now, 10 years later, that girl's aunt is in surgery, and her friend happens to be there at the exact moment that the pastor says the phrase, her blood will not clot. She remembers this. She runs down to the lab. She finds that paperwork from 10 years ago. She runs it back, gives it to the surgeon. They look at this. They test Barbara's blood. They realize she has the exact same rare condition and they start a course of treatment that ends up saving her life. 
all because two board med student, students happened to do that test 10 years ago, that one of them happened to be in the room when somebody happened to mention a phrase that happened to remind her about that test, that happened to be, happened to, happened to, just by chance, just lucky for her that she survives. And when I told somebody that story once before, thinking it was so cool, their response was, wouldn't it have been better for God to just not have her have that rare condition? And I thought about that. I would be like, yeah, that would have been cool. <laughs> then none of that would have happened. But it occurred to me, how many hundreds and thousands between just us sitting here, hospital visits have we been on for procedures that everything went fine? How much do we praise God for those? Probably some. Some of you have been for so many procedures, maybe it's just becoming commonplace. Maybe you just think procedures always go well. But one goes so badly that the person's about to die and all of these things come together and now it's a story that's in books and in sermons and God's sovereignty gets extolled and it gets illustrated and God gets praised for that story over and over again. I want you to remember that the next time something goes wrong in your life. And then God fixes it. And you wonder, why did you even let me go through that if you were just going to fix it in the end? And the answer is, so that you can praise him. So that you can learn these lessons. Wouldn't it have been easier for the book of Ruth if Elimelech didn't die? Yeah, but then we wouldn't have the book of Ruth. It would be like one line. There was this guy. He didn't die. Woohoo! No. The whole book of Ruth comes because of the tragedy. And so I want to close with these words again. With, with fresh ears, listen to what William Cooper said, and then we'll sing a part of it. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Our dear God, we're so moved by the lessons we learn about you in this book of Ruth. You are powerful, almighty, sovereign. That you use your providence to guide and to accomplish your purposes. You provide for us in our need. That even the tragedies that happen to us are used by you to bring glory and honor to your name and good and comfort to your people. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who is going through a difficulty right now, whether it be something fairly minor or, or something that really serious. We know that all of those details are under your control, and I pray that you would give them comfort, that they would be able to cling to you and your sovereignty and your love for them. We thank you for these lessons we've learned in the book of Ruth, and we thank you for our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.